0: Well, hello, everybody. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Sounding today a little bit like a cigarette addicted 1930s film star, but every week we talk about something related to love and liberation, to opening our bodies, our minds, our spirits to some more possibility. This week, I want to bring you up to speed on something because there's big news on the censorship front. You might remember that in March of this year, I interviewed a woman named Jackie Rotman at the Center for Intimacy Justice, and she's such a powerful leader. I had done a bunch of surveys from sexual health companies on algorithmic bias and censorship. Well, the news is that Meta actually revised their global policies to allow for sexual wellness, and sexual health advertising yesterday, which is a game changer for me and the company I founded. And also just a remarkable testimony to what can happen when people band together and gather data and then point out something like this, that it's insane that a technology with the kind of sophistication that they have for understanding people's behaviors and mindset was not able to distinguish between sexual health, sexual education, and pornography. So some of the things that are included are for men, like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation, those kind of things can be addressed. Uh, Other things like breastfeeding and uh, breastfeeding instruction can be offered, menopause, perimenopause. So we're pretty excited about that. And if you want to understand algorithmic bias more, ba- more broadly, it's not just this particular issue. It's also around medical justice, around racial justice, because algorithms are basically looking at prior behaviors and prior performance of something and making decisions based on the, up until now, general knowledge of mankind. And it really can slow down progress into new models of thinking, kind of locks in our bias. So congratulations to Jackie and to the entire sexual wellness sector. If you are looking for beautiful products for your own body or the body of women you love, please come and check out rosewoman.com and find body oils, intimate moisturizers, or other things that will delight you, I hope. Okay, so now the not so good news is that in the new ad guidelines, it specifically prohibits any mention of pleasure. So you can talk about health, but you can't talk about pleasure. And I got to thinking that this is sort of the next frontier because to me, pleasure is health. Pleasure is an intrinsic part of our well-being and our happiness. And so today I wanna talk about the connection between pleasure and health. So first off, there's a difference between sort of short-term enjoyment, sensory pleasure, what is called hedonism, you know, just doing things that are fun for fun's sake. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just that hedonic enjoyment or the activation of hedonic hotspots in the brain don't tend to produce a lasting happiness in life. They're momentary and fleeting. However, there are times when this hedonistic hotspot stuff is co-occurring with the parts of the brain that regulate connection and relatedness, uh, which are highly tied to meaning and belonging. And when those go off at the same time, when you can have total hedonic enjoyment, pleasure, fun, while at the same time feeling like you're developing greater meaning, belonging, connection, and relatedness, study after study shows that that is the key to lasting happiness, that you're having meaningful present relationship, and you're also having sensory enjoyment. With that in mind, what is the connection between sexual pleasure and happiness or sexual pleasure and health? Well, we know that uh, sexuality in general and having sex is really good for your physical self. It's important for your uh, cardiovascular system. It's an important neuroendocrine Regulator, You drop all kinds of feel-good hormones into your body with good sex. We know that it's a co-regulator emotionally. There's a feeling of belonging. The importance of touch goes into that as well. There are even studies out there that suggest that if you have 100 orgasms a year or two a week on average, whether solo sexually or with someone else, that you can extend your lifespan by three to eight years, which is shocking and exciting at the same time. So... We know there's deep ties to health, and we also know that when sexual education, sex ed prevention campaigns, things like around STIs or condom use or birth control, when those campaigns lead with pleasure, like this big campaign in Africa called Treasure Your Pleasure that has 8 million young people have viewed it, when it leads with that, that the rest of the sexual education program is much more effective. So why don't we start by acknowledging that pleasure matters? And it doesn't just matter for the health of the individual. It clearly matters for the health of our relationships and our families, and also for society as a whole. Now maybe you've never given much thought to this, but I've been thinking about violence for a long time. And I was lucky to be introduced to the ideas of Dieter Doom many, many years ago. Um, he was a German philosopher, and he wrote a lot about how repressed Eros is at the foundation of all violence. I'm going to read a quote from him now Dieter Doom on Eros and Healing. He's 80 years old now, so there's some pretty binary gender understanding in what he's writing but let's just go with the gender essence quality of the masculine and feminine polarity, not so much the genitalia, okay? The love between man and woman is one of the most beautiful things that one can experience on our earth. Nobody who is in this state of love can imagine that it will ever be over. Nevertheless, almost all love relationships fail. Human society has a collective heartache. For most people, the area in which they could have the most beautiful experiences is an area of deep disappointment, suffering, anger, and often ultimate resignation. The issue of love is a global issue. There cannot be peace in the world as long as there is war and love. And what is meant here is the daily little war between the sexes, with its terrible consequences for the children. The interconnection between unfulfilled love on the one hand and disease or merciless brutality on the other can today be seen in every orphanage and in every biography of violent youngsters. We find it in the life story of all dictators, see the works of Alice Miller, and we also find it in psychosomatic diseases if we know how to interpret the symptoms correctly. Humankind needs fulfillment of love in order to resurrect every love, sensual love, soul love, religious love, loving your neighbor, loving animals, partner love. The central aspect is the reconnection of the two halves of the human being, man and woman. At the core of human cohabitation is the cohabitation between the genders, their attraction or repulsion, their sexual signals and their interactions and their hopes and disappointments run like a secret nervous system through the whole of human society, through every office, every department store, every meeting and every group the two halves of the human being long for each other and yet they fail to meet each other they fight each other and search for each other they must find each other not only in twos but worldwide for only then can the deepest of all wounds be healed the happiness or misery of children and thus the happiness of all people for we were all once children depends above all on a harmonious connection between man and woman after thousands of years of suppression and denial during the patriarchal era The healing of love between the genders is probably the most revolutionary step in the current healing work. A new humane culture is rooted in a new relation between the genders. Man, do you see? It's like if if we've got gun violence, intimate partner and community-based violence, human rights, kind of violations, all of this stuff, sexuality and healthy relationships are a pretty big healer. I'm reminded of that Prince song from 2004 uh, you probably know it, it's, it's call my name. I love it when you call my name. And in there he says, you know, I, hear, I heard a voice on the news saying people wanna stop the war. You know, if they had a love as sweet as you, they'd forget what they were fighting for. Yeah, this idea that happy, pleasurable, harmonious sexual relationships are at the heart of a nonviolent society is pretty profound. I love it how Dieter Doom says that this unmet need for reconciled love, erotic satisfaction, harmonious relationship between genders is why we don't have a nonviolent society. I also love his tender focus on the children. Can you remember being little and your parents fought? Or in my house when I was the parent and I fought, the kids were so scared my grandson, when his parents fight, they're so scared. They hate it. Like that's the core wound of childhood is not knowing the safety and security of a peaceful and harmonious home, a stable base off of which to leap and thrive. So today we're talking pleasure. I have a couple of things going on here. Um, Going to share the recording with you from Sensing Woman, a panel on pleasure throughout the lifetime. I did not host this panel. This was hosted by Allie Ward of Ologies. She's a remarkable interviewer and very, very funny. And the two women that she's interviewing: Logan Levkoff, who's a sexuality coach and educator, and Deborah Piscali Bonero, who talks about orgasmic birth. They really approach sexual pleasure and relationship effectiveness and health and joy from very different positions in the sexuality field, but they come together in a very interesting way. You can also see the video of the three beauties talking at sensingwoman.org. All right. Enjoy this as always. Let me know how you like it. Best way to do that is to reach me on Instagram at the.rose. Hi, I'm Allie
1: Ward. Um, I host Ologies, and I'm a a big science geek, and I'm really excited to just ask uh, smart people not smart questions. And first, we have uh, Logan Lefkoff. She is a certified sex educator and an expert in sexuality and sex education. And we have Deborah Pascali uh, Bonaro, who is an expert on orgasmic childbirth, which are not words you often hear together (laughs) at all. But yeah, so I wanted to just, we're going to kind of go through a couple of things um, one-on-one, but we're really talking about sexuality through a lifetime. I'm going to let you both introduce yourself a little bit, if you could just tell us your name and your pronouns, as I always start, ologies, and and just tell us a little bit each before we get into your work, Logan, um, about what the core of of your work is, if you had to tell someone at a cocktail party, like, what do you do? Because you have
2: weird jobs and it's great. So my name is Logan Levkoff. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I am a sexuality educator and have been since the age of 15, (laughs) I mean, not professionally, but (laughs) when I was a peer HIV and AIDS educator because I came home from school one day and there were condoms and bananas on my dinner table. And my parents, for whatever reason, became super involved in HIV and AIDS fundraising and awareness and said, here are condoms, here are bananas, this is how you use them, and next week you are going to become a peer educator. And I said, okay, and here I am 30 mm, years later. (laughs) They had no idea what
1: they were igniting. No,
2: no idea whatsoever.
1: One banana on the kitchen table can change the world. (laughs)
3: Um, And Deborah. Yeah, my name's Deborah Pascale Bonaro. I use she, her pronouns. And I've been a doula for 36 years. I train doulas all around the world. And in my passion for birth over time, I started seeing that birth was pleasurable, joyful, ecstatic, and orgasmic. And I kind of thought, well, that's the best kept secret. All we're talking about is pain and fear. Why aren't we bringing out what's possible and really looking at what it takes so that everyone can have an orgasmic birth? And I do bring that up on the plane all the time around the world because they're (laughs) trapped. And I feel like the more people I can talk to and explain, because it doesn't matter where you are in the cycle, if you'll give birth one day or not, you know somebody that will, and it really takes everyone to shift the paradigm on birth. So, thank you. Well, Logan, let's get a little bit into sexuality
1: over someone's lifetime. And I'm curious, you know, you said that you started as a sex educator at 15. I think maybe that's when people start to think sexual fireworks start to ignite. But when does sexuality start for a person?
2: It's such, I'm so glad you brought it up because I, we have a tendency to believe that sexuality is something that gets magically turned on at a Culturally appropriate, magical age, typically by someone else. And unfortunately, that's wrong. (laughs) It's always been wrong. It's never been correct. We are all sexual beings from birth to death. We all have a sexuality. We all choose to express that sexuality as complex as it is, whether it's sex, gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, body image, sexual feelings and desires and pleasure. Like all of that, all of that combination is always with us. We just notice different things at different times. So there isn't a magical window, age, magically culturally appropriate time in which people become sexual beings. And I often think, and and I am tasked on a regular basis, I am literally in classrooms, so I teach hundreds of young people, kids, teens, all the way up through, I think my oldest students have been 94. Um, I know. Amazing mm-hmm. right, and Love actually, it. they were asking about vibrators, so <laughs> just saying not just for the young uh, but I, I think it's really important that that we recognize that we're always sexual beings, always, and that means we're entitled to information, you know education, empowerment, and and a good sense of self about who we, who we are.
1: do you think that how you are Assigned gender at birth, or how you were raised, uh, whether you're raised femme or mask. Do you think that that affects
2: the way people experience their own sexuality? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes to all of those, all of those questions. Um, I mean, look, I think there are still. I'm waiting for the day when I can say there are no double standards whatsoever when it comes to sex. Yeah. But I haven't gotten there yet. Unfortunately, I think there is still a tremendous double standard, particularly people who are assigned female or experience life as, as femme or feminine in any particular way where you know the, that magically time that magical time is for them right mm-hmm. That's what we say or we have these this binary of like you're a prude or you're a slut you should know that I have this visceral reaction to the word slut I don't I don't I mean I don't care who reclaims it. I've, I'm not interested in reclaiming it mostly because working with young people, you see the damage that gets done prior to someone being able to understand the reclamation of it. So that's Mm -hmm. my own thing. It's fine. But I do think that we, we, in addition to the binary, um, you know, we raise some people to be very empowered by their bodies and pleasure and and seeking pleasure. And we say to others, "Mm, maybe you should wait. If everyone understood that Bodies might be assigned differently, but they all start pretty much the same way. It means that every single body has the innate capacity for pleasure, regardless of how those bodies were assigned, regardless of who you're attracted to, and regardless of how you choose to express or identify yourself. Mm -hmm. What
1: do you feel like is... The biggest bombshell people learn in across the ages in your sex education that changes the way that they experience sex or experience their own body. Is there anything that you find can really liberate people? It's probably
2: the hardest question I've ever been asked, Allie. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I just I I think it really I think it depends on who who you're talking to and who you're working with, right? So if Mm -hmm. I'm working with you know, an aging population, you know, to tell them that they've been sexual their whole lives and that they've been entitled to pleasure and and fulfillment their whole lives, that's, I mean, it may be a delayed liberation, but it's really eye-opening. I think for young people, figuring out that actually, that's how your body works. And those like tingly, amazing feelings, you have to know that is what's supposed to happen. You're not broken in some way is incredibly liberating. Um, so I think it it, it really depends. But the, my, my one message has always been every person is entitled to pleasure and fulfillment on their own terms. And it's not dependent on Who you are or who you're with or how old you are or whether it's some kind of like arbitrary legal commitment. Every person has the capacity for pleasure and the more um, confident and comfortable we are with accessing it, the better off all the other things in our lives will be whether we choose to be in a partnership or not.
1: When you're educating people who have vulvas and you're like this is actually how big a clitoris is or like this is the statistic of people who don't orgasm their entire married life um, do you ever see just like blood drain out of people's faces?
2: <laughs> Regularly, obviously. <laughs> um, what is the statistic like a, like on that? A, like a sex ed vampire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, Well, I think the part that's mind blowing for most people is that the, the clitoris and the penis start from the same genital tubercule. Right. So like when you tell people that they're like, wait, what? Wait, they start, they're, they start from the same thing? And I said, yeah, so you could think of it one of two ways. You know, people like to say that the clitoris is a small penis. I just like to say that the penis is a larger clitoris, <laughs> <laughs> right? Either way, however you frame it, it's important to know that, like, this is... We are not all that different. Um, fundamentally, we have parts that are arranged differently. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that some of us are entitled to more than others. That's not true. Uh,
1: is there... A way that you've seen how people have reclaimed their own bodies or their own relationship with their own sensuality through your career, where do you feel like things are going right now?
2: The nice thing about having lots of diverse voices everywhere is that we're talking about the diverse range of sexuality and expression and experiences. So people know how to get and access information. Hopefully it's the good information, not like just the thing that comes up first on Google. I mean, sometimes (laughs) that works, sometimes it does not work. Um, But but I think that where we're going is, is that people know, even if they don't know exactly how to access information, they know that sexuality is important because we're talking about it, and they're seeing how high the stakes are if they don't understand what's going on with their body or someone else's body. They realize that there is um, there is bodily autonomy that we are all entitled to, and they're seeing it being taken away. So there's a there's a nice wake up call now for everyone. I, it's unfortunate that we're here, but you know every every generation has that moment where you have to shake up a little and say, okay, we need to take stock of what's important, and I think we're there.
1: What about the transition into parenthood? I feel like I don't have kids, and I'm, I'm not going to. My, my particular body was just like, sorry, we're not doing that, which is fine. I kind of, there was something where I was like, well, I guess I'm off the hook for that. But if there is a transition to where you're suddenly raising a child, you're going through a lot of hormonal shifts if you're the one that's given birth. Do you ever have to coach people in terms of how to kind of get back to that sense of pleasure and play when they're like, I feel like drained of all of my liquids and energy?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I should disclose, I have a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old who are absolutely the children of a sexuality educator. (laughs) Um, You know, when someone says like, you don't talk about sex at the dinner table, my kids are like, have you come over recently? Yes, we do. We talk about everything.
1: It's a bowl of bananas, I'm sure.
2: Yes. yeah. I, you know, I don't laugh. There, there was one, I, I was working with a condom company and they sent me all these samples and I, my, my kids must have been like two and six and I had these samples all over the floor. And my son <laughs> came up and he's like... Are you giving out prizes in class today? I'm like, yes, I am. Let's talk about what the prizes are. Let's learn to put it on. And so we did. Good. Because I'm that parent. Um, but but yes, the 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 answer is, you know, that transition to parenthood, whether it's biological, whether it's emotional, whether whatever it is, right? That that move changes everything, right? It's hard not for it not to change any, everything. Um, I think one of the misconceptions other than what you're going to hear here, which was not my experience. I have to be be honest, we should have met 17 and a half years ago, but (laughs) I was not that lucky. I think it's a matter of remembering that your body goes through something. I mean, I'll use the word traumatic, but I don't necessarily mean that in a negative sense. It's a huge shift for, for everything. And so it's not a shock that things are not exactly the same afterwards, but we have to reframe, you know, how we feel about our own bodies if we're partnered, how we communicate our needs. Because, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but no one is a mind reader. No one is going to magically yeah. be like this, 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 and this work for you. I, I've never met that person. If you meet them, send them my way. <laughs> I, I have a lot of questions. Um, but most people don't can't do that. So. We all have to be committed to communicating, to sharing our needs, what fulfills us, what doesn't in ways that aren't like, you suck at this. You know, we have to come up with a better, better language for that. But um, it's always a work in progress and it Mm -hmm. always requires conversation. Um, Even if you've been with someone for a long time, even if you expect that everything's going to like magically go back, it doesn't. It's a transition, but it doesn't mean it's a bad transition. It's, It's part of your life's journey.
1: You know, and I'm sorry that your experience wasn't
2: <laughs> me too
1: <laughs> one to write home about. Deborah, getting to what you do again, I when I first read your bio, I was like, orgasmic what? Like orgasmic birth? I never, um, yeah, I never put those together. When a person is giving birth, how? I guess is my question. <laughs>
3: Of course. So first of all, I think it's important to just define orgasmic birth. Because I think we all, as soon as you heard that, like I always love to ask people if we had the time to, what does that mean to you, right? Because we all go in different places. And some people go to orgasm. And this is an orgasm at birth. And I always want to say, that happens more than you think. And it is something that people don't talk about. And so many people, literally thousands, have come up to me, told me they had an orgasm giving birth. They never told their partner. They certainly never tapped their provider on the shoulder and said, guess what, You know, to midwife or a doctor. And many of them don't tell their friends. So orgasmic birth is to take the shame out of people that are truly having an orgasm at some time in labor and birth. But we all know that an orgasm isn't the only avenue to pleasure. So orgasmic birth is truly opening up that during the process of labor and birth, that we can be more connected, we can have more love, more joy. We prepare for birth with pleasure. And with that, there's often like, for me, it was even the feeling of just tuning into my body And feeling my baby move down into my hands, right? Holding the head, feeling the feet inside, and then the release that was, to me, orgasmic. So I didn't have rolling orgasms. I wish I did. But I do meet people that do. So I think when we think about orgasmic birth, part of the preparation is what you said, Logan. It's that we have to live a life of pleasure, You know, you can't think about like, okay, I have no pleasure in life. I'm not really sexually satisfied, and I'm going to have an orgasmic birth. Like, that's (laughs) rarely going to come together. But people that already are really in touch with their body, that start preparing with pleasure and diving deeper into that communication you talked about. What do they need? What brings them satisfaction? tend to more likely experience moments of pleasure. But I do want to say that doesn't mean they don't have pain too or challenge or other sensations. We don't have to say that we're only going to ride pleasure. We're going to have different feelings in labor. That's why we call them waves, right? And we ride them in many different ways. But I do want to add off something else you said. Is we're seeing more and more people, and I do have to say, at one point when I made the documentary "Orgasmic Birth," someone called me right away and said, "I want an orgasmic birth. You're a doula. Are you the orgasmic doula?" And I well, remember going, "No, no, no!" Like that, those two words don't really go together. But when I went to her birth, she had prepared, and all her friends, instead of throwing a baby shower gave her every vibrator on the market. And it was the first birth that I attended. And I was like, why didn't I think of this? And she realized that if she was stimulating the clitoral nerves, she would feel pleasure rather than pain. And she is someone that even she said, she has no idea how many orgasms she had through that whole process. And she had a pain-free birth. So was she just like vibing out during labor the whole time? Every time she had, and I don't call them contractions because part of changing birth is change the language. When you say contraction, people often think tight and pain, which that's, you're in that mindset, right? Mind, body. So we tend to call them surges, your personal power surge, wave, rushes, whatever kind of works for you. So Mm -hmm. every time she had a surge, that vibrator went on. And only external.
2: and I'm sorry, I never even considered that. I, I know. Have to like re- I just <laughs> love that you're... Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's, this is my friends who are going to be... I, yes, I have and a lot of information to share. <laughs> a I'm, lot of people yeah. who don't even vibrate
3: are just doing their own stimulation. Partners, I always say to partners, it's like... They go, what's our role? And I'm like, well, you know how to satisfy, I hope, really well. So bring that satisfaction. The right way to give birth is the right way to make love. If we connected that, we would see a huge shift, not only in more satisfying births, but I actually believe in better outcomes. Now, is this
1: happening like home birth? You got an inflatable pool. You got a salt lamp. Like you got dim lights, right? <laughs> or is this like downtown Kaiser and you're just like, bring it on. Like what, is this, is this a possible thing for someone who's just like, I'm going to the hospital and, and also if you have an epidural, can you still,
3: yeah. Well, the epidural is a big question because okay. in your sexuality, in other ways, right? How would it feel to have an epidural? Probably not too satisfying. Right. So the epidural is usually takes away some of that pleasure, but I always say you can find pleasure in other ways. So when people want an epidural, we always say no one should suffer in childbirth. And if pain becomes suffering, an epidural is a valuable tool, and then we can find pleasure in other ways. But back to kind of the vibrator or really going for an orgasmic birth, yes, you know, the right place to make love is often in your own environment. So home birth, it's easier. Birth center, it's easier because our midwives really know that what people need to labor easily is the same things they need to have great sex. They need to feel safe, they need to have privacy, and they need to feel unobserved. And that's just any birth. Like, if you don't have those three criteria, your labor is going to be longer and harder. Your brain is producing the exact same hormones that give you good sex and an orgasm in labor. And if you don't feel safe enough to flow those hormones, labor is not going to work well. So when we move to that hospital, right, we already have some barriers to feeling private, safe, and unobserved. So that's what doulas come in. We come in and really try in the hospital environment to protect that space, to help you reclaim that space in how you define privacy, safety, and unobserved. And if you want to do other things like masturbation and vibrators, we often say, we'll kind of go outside and stand in the hallway and be on guard and say, there's some intimacy happening right now. They need you know 20, 30 minutes of privacy. But I have to share one story. Normally, we're telling people that we want little vibrators, right? Finger vibrators. It's all external, not internal clitoris. What of my clients, I must not have been clear. And if you all know the rabbit, she brought this big one that went, you know? And I'm like, wait a second. Like, that we're not using today? But she decided, well. I'm going to just set it on the fetal monitor. And every time the staff came in and tried to read the monitor, all they could see was this big vibrator. And at one point, a medical person came in and said, you know, labor's taking a little longer. I think we should think about induction. And just on her own, I didn't say anything, she reached over, grabbed the rabbit, hit the on button, and it started doing the, you know, and the care provider couldn't talk, couldn't continue the conversation, left the room. And I said after that, that was the best privacy tool I've ever seen. <laughs> and once we cleared the room of all the medical staff, I looked at her and her partner and I said, why don't I leave? Don't use the rabbit, but you have other ways of doing what you need to do to get your labor going. And they had a beautiful orgasmic
0: birth. I guess
3: she's like big job, big tool, you know?
0: I have to take a break for a word from our sponsor, Maui Super Herbs, also known as Maui CBD. I was fortunate enough to try their exquisite and pure CBD products in both tincture form and in a body salve, a muscle rub. And I think you will love them. Maui CBD is offering two of their products at sensingwoman.org as a benefit for reproductive rights and women's health. So why don't you go on over to Sensing Woman and check them out. The finest quality CBD straight from Hawaii, benefiting local farmers, creating abundance for all, and bringing healing to everyone that tries it. Maui Super Herbs at Mm sensingwoman.org. I'm going to take some questions because I feel like you have a
1: lot for either one of these amazing educators. Also, really quick though, you said that you were you one of many children, or your grandpa or your your parents were one of nine
3: or something. So yeah, I have a great grandmother that had eight children, and that's right. where I learned about pleasure and right. birth. Um, my great grandmother was born in the early 1900s, came over from Italy actually ended up living not far from here um, and then moved to New Jersey. But she was at a time where all birth was at home. So she had her children at home and she was kind of petite and round. And when I was little and she was late eighties, you know, I could never picture her as a young woman, but she would tell me birth stories. Like I was a weird kid. I was already wanting to know about birth, right? I was like, great. How did you birth those kids? And um she would get up and waddle over to the kitchen sink and lean over and kind of dangle squat And she would reenact birthing the baby and she would reach down in the air to pull up this imaginary baby and she would just explode in love and joy. And she would say to me, you know, you move and you listen to your body and you dance and you move in labor. And when you birth your baby, it is full of love and joy. She never talked about pain. She talked about challenge, but that you're always strong enough to overcome the challenge. And I could really feel the ecstasy that she felt with birth. So I'm sure that planted the seed. And when I went to give birth and I was in a hospital in Canada, I fought like hell because I wanted what she had. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want the system to put me down in every way, emotionally and physically, and that's what set me on my path. Mm-hmm. You're like, give me a good kitchen sink and some ravioli. Let's
1: do this, man. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. I mean, it must have worked, because she's just like, let's do this seven more times, shall we? <laughs> like, um, OK, let's take some questions. I know we have one back there.
0: Hi. Um, I didn't know about orgasmic birth. Unfortunately, I was in the Lamaze training. But what I'm curious about is it seems like it would be a- affect the baby does the baby come out smiling? You know, it's is uh-huh. kind of like the question, um, you know, is there any um, observation or data on that?
3: I don't know about, and it's a great question, I don't know about data, but we do know when birth is more gentle, right, we're going to, it's going to be more gentle for the baby. And when people are moving and they're upright and they're listening to their body and they're connected, they're, they're in their power. They know where they need to move. Mother and baby, birthing person and baby are like intimate together. And they need to keep moving to find their way down. So I believe that orgasmic birth, that pleasure in labor, is helping to have a gentle, easier birth. And the other thing, and I'm learning all the time, too, is if we look at the clitoris, and we have some beautiful ones upstairs in the art, and you look at the bulbs and kind of the wings, we know that they're attached in front of the pubic arch. right? And they're in that frame front part of the vagina, when people are giving birth and they're being put down, they're on their back, they're pushing uphill, which is stupid in itself, we know that it's dangerous, but we do it every day, Um, we're not creating pressure into the clitoris. When people listen to their own body and they move in labor, they lean forward. And when they lean forward, that not only helps the baby's head to rotate forward, but puts that little baby's head pressing into those clitoral nerves, which creates lubrication and swelling, which is actually going to ease their passage into the world and give you some of those waves and sensations that we even now call the fetus ejection reflex. It actually helps. the baby to birth so i think when we look at all the aspects of orgasmic birth how have we ever disconnected birth from sexuality as you said logan it's from birth to death why did we take it out of people laboring their sexuality is included and allowing them to use that it i believe is going to help the baby have a gentler birth So I'm sure you guys approach this differently, but how do you encourage your clients or who you're teaching or whoever you're working with to kind of explore that intimacy with their own body and get to know themselves a little bit better? Because I imagine a lot of people are like sometimes maybe not raised in as open a household
2: or maybe a bit more shy or curious about it. So what are some resources you offer? I always laugh when I tell the story about my family because we weren't super liberal when it came to sex and sexuality. It was this unbelievable blip in time when sex became this life or death thing, right? So all of a sudden, people were talking because the stakes were really high. So that, I mean, I I never learned about masturbation as a young person. I actually thought the only people who talked about it were families, my my friends' families who had older brothers. I mean, literally, that's like, I didn't even realize that was a a thing, Um, you know, until I figured out how dumb I was and how I'd lost a lot of time in the process, Um, but... What I would say to people now is uh, I always talk about the importance of masturbation, not just because of sexual pleasure, though that's important, and, and obviously it depends on who you're working with, but it has some very significant health benefits. I mean, yes, better for sleep, better for you know, stress relief, but also when you know how, what, what the baseline is for your body and what works for you, you're far more likely to be able to identify when something is off for you. Right, which is, which is really important. It's like, how do you diagnose something if you don't know what the norm is for you? So that there's a piece of it, and, and you know, I, I, I think that we forget how much pleasure is essential to our overall health. I mean, we've, for years, I mean, most of us in this space have been talking about it for a long time, but we still live in a world very much that says like, you know, pleasure might be an added benefit, but it's not important, which is why so many people don't talk to medical providers about sexual function. Right to me, and I do a lot of trainings with you know with residents and in med schools, and I often say like you have to ask about function. Pleasure is also an indicator of other health issues that are going on. If there has been a change, it, for positive or for you know negative, like these are questions you need to ask. But oftentimes, patients don't talk because they've been taught that you know the, the obvious symptoms are the ones that they need to be concerned about. Pleasure isn't important where actually it gives us a, a lot more information. So it's important for the, the, big, the big picture, not you know, not just like the superficial idea that pleasure is important. Mm-hmm.
4: Hi, I have a question. So much I'm hearing about is pleasure, the heart, and the mind linked with the body. Tell me why women, friends of mine, have had orgasms when they were raped, violently raped. It takes them forever to get over it ever. Some never have. Why? Why did that link happen when it wasn't pleasurable? It was violent.
2: So I'm, I'm not a therapist. You know, I just want to acknowledge that. But one of the things I will say is that the body does things involuntarily, right? Not because we want things to happen, but there are things that happen because certain areas are touched and blood rushes into them. The issue really is that We need to teach people that someone's response shouldn't be a source of guilt for them. And that's a really hard thing, particularly when someone has suffered a traumatic experience, to not link those two things as if it's something that you wanted. We don't always control our bodies, and particularly in in situations like that. So I think it's it's an important thing to remember that our body reacts oftentimes when we don't want it to react, you know, whether that's blood flow, whether that's an erection Uh, You know, whether that's something that someone would call an orgasm, but, you know, I see an orgasm to be something empowering and consensual and pleasurable. I wouldn't use the same, you know, term for it, but that, I mean, that's why The, the body blood flows, pressure and buildup are released and it's not because of what's up here.
1: I'm sure there's also so much, the shame that is carried from even being a victim and then your response as a victim is also something that as a culture needs so much work as well.
2: Very much so. We, we, we really need a whole shift in how we talk about people's experiences. And, and also, you know, we hear, it in the, we hear it in the news a lot when people talk about something that's clearly non-consensual or assault, but call it sex. In order for something to be sex, it has to be consensual.
1: Hard stuff. Mm. I actually had a question for both of you about culture. So it's a perfect transition, but it must be Kind of difficult to do both of your jobs in our society where sex and also birth are not really in the main topic and valued. So, how do you propose we continue that conversation as a society and maybe some resources
3: to continue following it as individuals? Yeah, great question. So, I think just like we're doing here, we have to have these conversations about birth and sex many places. We have to take away The stigma and maybe you're the first person to sit at a dinner table and bring up sexuality and sexuality through the life cycle with friends, with family. That's why I'm bold. I bring it up everywhere I am. I truly do. Like, if I'm stuck in an elevator, you know, for a minute, sometimes I'll even just throw out questions. What do you think of orgasmic birth? Like, I feel like we have to have the conversation wherever we are. But also, there are many great organizations that are doing fantastic work in my field. So I always feel we need to amplify their voices, follow them on social and that. And when it comes to the US too, I just want to add in, that it's not just advocating for orgasmic birth, it's advocating for equity and birth justice Too many people are dying in childbirth and it's disproportionate to black and brown and indigenous women. So there are a lot of groups in the space of childbirth. Um, Black Mamas Matter, Every Mother Counts are great organizations. I love to follow here in New York, Ancient Song, um, Follow Us, Orgasmic Birth. I think that if we can follow some of the thought leaders and
2: help other people to see their content. Working in sex ed, particularly with young people, I have been really lucky that I don't I get rare, rare pushback on what I do for, for, for decades. You know, social media has changed that slightly. All of a sudden, people who had no idea who you were or what you do like to weigh in in all sorts of ways. I think that when you work in any of these spaces and you're talking about empowerment of bodies and sexuality mm-hmm regardless of the demographic you're working with, I think you have to be prepared to deal with some shit, for lack of a better term. Like, you know, I knew when I started this field that there were going to be a million and one people to tell me I was too young, I was to, you know, I, it wasn't a real profession. I mean, sex education is one of the most underrated professions there is. There are, and it's so important for everyone. Um, so I knew that going into it. And I think that anytime we step into these spaces, we have to remember that we have the right to share our voice. We're going to deal with pushback, but we have facts. And ethics on our side. <laughs> like we we have every reason in the world to speak up for these things, and it's hard to do. Like, I'm not like I'm not telling everyone to go out and do it if you're not <laughs> ready to deal with what could potentially come back at you. But I think that that talking openly about these issues comes with risks, but the rewards are so tremendous. And my feeling has always been: if one person walks out of a classroom that I've been in feeling like they've been seen and heard and and just feel great about who they are as a human being, then I've done my job. And like I, the rest of it is just a noise because the likelihood is the people who are going to yell at me are people who would still say hello to me on the street. They just like to yell behind a screen. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to put it into perspective. Hi. If for
1: monetary and insurance purposes, our birth plan involves just going to the hospital, <laughs> And, you know, without a doula and without a, a birthing center, as much as that would be amazing, what, is, what are some things that we can be empowered to ask for or demand in the room and for that day that can at least help make it a, a more soothing experience? Like, for instance,
2: yeah, women give birth on their back. Is there, an op- is there another option or will the doctor be confused?
3: So, there are many options. And first, I want to say that insurance covers home birth and birth centers in many parts of the country. So, it's really important that everybody, like, explores that. Doulas are being covered in many places by Medicaid, um, and also many corporations, CVS, they're all their employees get doulas. So, does Aetna. So, you may be surprised in that doulas are a covered benefit or you can find the way to access them. But, in a hospital setting, with or without a doula or whatever, I think some important things are is that you need to create an environment that you can make love in. And I'm, I'm serious about that. Like, you need to run the same hormones. Oxytocin is, has to peak. So what do you need the lights to be like? I kind of call it birth ambiance. What do you need to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, and to touch? And so that may mean bringing in, like, Electric candles, what aroma, you know, people are always bringing lavender and jasmine or rose, right? Like change everything up, bring your music, set it up so that you truly can dance and move through labor in a sensuous and intimate way. The other thing is find care providers. And this is really important that give you freedom of movement that are used to catching babies upright, whether it's squatting, kneeling, leaning. But you want to ask, you know, what percentage of their births, birth in all different positions. And if they can't answer that, Like, would you ever go in a store and if someone could answer your question, still buy the product? Like, why are we turning our bodies and our babies over to a world that's not keeping up with current science and that's not respecting our choices? So you really need to do your homework. There are great midwives, and I call doctors that practice in that model. Um, Their MD stands for midwife in disguise. They're around here. You need to find them that really honor all birthing people to birth in their power, in their way, um, and to have a much more joyful birth. Get a job at CVS, apparently. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew, right? I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah.
1: I guess they are at the corner of healthy and happy or whatever. Um, Yeah, back there.
5: Hi there. Um, Thank you for this. I grew up at a time when uh, people would say to women, uh, a strong woman, you have penis envy, right? Right. And uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, understanding that I had pussy envy, you know? (laughs) Because for me, my greatest teachers were women and listening to them. And women have so many places to go to be in their tribe, right? And I feel like to get um, the conversation elevated we need to get women and men in the room together. And I'm curious about, when I throw events, it's 80% women and people say, where's all the cool men? And I'm like, I'm looking for them too, you know? (laughs) So do you guys have any thoughts about ways to integrate so that men could be elevated in their consciousness as well?
2: It's a great question. And I I do, I, I never want anyone to feel like these conversations have to be segregated by gender, by assignment, but what? because we all learn together, you know, I, and I'll, I'll just go off on a tangent for one second then I promise I will attempt to answer your question. You know, when I, when I teach, even when we're talking about puberty and sexual development, I keep all of my students together in one room. And inevitably I'll get questions like, why are we not separated? I'm like, well, first of all, like from a gender perspective, I'm not asking anyone to pick a side, right? Like I'm not like outing someone and saying, or tell me what room you'd like to be in. Um, But also the reality is that we're far more similar than we are different, right? We have a few things that are different, but most we deal with in terms of sexual development, particularly when we're young, is the same. And I think that if we can reframe conversations to talk more about how we're similar and what we can learn from each other's similarities than differences, like we can talk about the differences after the fact, but if we focus on the things that we have in common, I think it'll change the conversation and make it far less threatening, right? We do so much of the like, you have to enter our circle and you're not really one of us. um, Instead of saying like, actually, like let's all do this together. Like how would our lives universally be better if we shared our experiences openly and didn't make it about teams or sides, but just that we're human. Pleasure and intimacy, however we want to define our experience, it benefits us, benefits us all. And sometimes that's about like, clever titles and changing the language to make sure people know that, like, it's, it's for everyone's benefit, you know, rather than just, like, come into my space.
1: So more inclusivity is always better.
2: Yeah. And I, and I, think, I, I think we're used to, because we, because we want to talk about our differences and that we focus a lot on differences instead of talking about the things that we share. And maybe if we did a little bit more about, like, what makes, what are the things that we have in common? Uh, maybe it'd be easier to get people into the door
1: and if they hadn't segregated so much of sex ed there wouldn't be people trying to legislate body parts they don't know about like uh, did you see that tweet where like a senator someone was like asked like how do how do they pee with a tampon in and it's like you're making laws how is it possible (laughs) it's it's my tangent but yeah (laughs)
0: Hi, I came in from Connecticut. I didn't realize you're this far west, so it took me a while, but I know this is about birth. I have a few people in my life in that stage, and I had a friend who just did, as a, as a somatic woman in Connecticut, she just had birth with uh, very long labor and then went into having ayahuasca because that was part of what some of the indigenous people she had learned about used, and it was an amazing labor experience. So I didn't know if you had any familiarity with that. Ayahuasca is, a, is an indigenous plant yes. medicine.
1: What a ride. Can you imagine? Totally. You need What an out-of-office reply you need. You're like, I'm giving birth. I'm on ayahuasca. Like, don't expect an email back from me. Like, not available right now. Like, sorry, I missed your text. I was
3: really, Allie. I have to say that um, in, in my travels, I've done a lot of work in Brazil. And so no, I'm very familiar with ayahuasca ceremonies from there and ended up working with a lot of the doulas that support ayahuasca, um, through pregnancy and birth and then met some of the midwives that support those births so it's not been my first-hand experience but I've worked with many providers and have heard amazing stories of using plant medicine and labor as really being a fantastic tool for people um, to have very powerful um, beautiful births Man, yeah, google that Yeah, it's like CVS covers that also. Yeah, Um, I'm not so sure. So I've never heard of it in the U.S. I'm not advocating for it, just saying that was my experience in Brazil. Wow, who knew?
4: I'm curious, in your teaching of, um, I think you said middle school?
2: All, All ages.
4: How do you teach a student who's coming from a very religious background that is no sex until marriage, who's actually... Maybe 13 or 14, and her marriage is already arranged at 18 in the country that her parents come from, even though she's raised here. I was asked by a parent not to bring up certain things in the classroom. I can't control what the other students bring up. So the parent removed the child from my classroom because the other children were talking openly because their families do. So what do we do about these strong religious groups how do, you, how do we teach them?
2: I've had the, the privilege of teaching in both secular spaces, in religious spaces, um, for a range of faiths. And, and one of the things that I've, I've done, and I, and I think part of it is that you, you know, ideally you have buy-in from administration and family. I mean, that's the, that's the goal. And sometimes, sometimes, I mean, look, there's always a disclaimer, right? Like it's not my job to give values. Right? I'm not. I'm not teaching for my own personal values. Every family has their own values, religion, faith, spirituality. You know, I am here to give facts. You know, and and you might have di- discussed different sides of an issue, and I'm going to help sort of facilitate that conversation. But it's not me telling you what what you should or should not do. I think sometimes with families, we also have to sit down and and say. You know, there, there are certain realities in the world that our kids, regardless of how sheltered we think they are from certain information, they are getting a tremendous amount. And clearly, it's not always the information we want. It's not always accurate. It's often exploitative or, or fear-based. What is the type of information you'd like them to receive? Like, how, you know, think about like, what are your, what are your, it's a hard question to ask, right? Like, what are your sex ed goals for the people in your life? I mean, is it really to, and I would ask this of anyone, is it to lock a person up until some magical age, or do we want to give them information and confidence so that when they make certain decisions, they know how to make good ones, right, that, that are not about, like a, not about an, an, an age? That, that's a really tricky thing. I have had in the last 25 years, I've had a few parents pull their kids from, from a class, and the, the saddest thing is that these kids desperately want to be in class, right? Because they're getting information from their friends, their peers, and it changes the way they interact with their peers. Um, so that, that's not, I mean, <laughs> That's not like a clear answer. How do we deal with it? We, ha- we have to try to, to work first as a family to explain very clearly, these are the things we're teaching about. This is what we are not saying. Um, tell me what your concerns are. Let's see if we can come to some middle ground so they get information that they need in order to, to feel good about who they are at this stage in their lives. But it doesn't always work out in the favor, you know, in, in, the, in a sex educator's favor, unfortunately.
1: Do you ever find also that people grow into adulthood carrying some of that past sort of religious repression? Like, I have full-grown adult female friends, and I myself was raised Catholic, like, on both sides, so just it took a lot of unwiring to become at all liberated from that, but, um, you know, still have friends who still feel shameful about that. Like, is there any way to cut, to kind of cut through that and let them know that, uh, that God's not mad at them for coming? I think <laughs> <laughs> she's very happy. He's in a robe and he's like, don't do it. <laughs> that's the worst, the least, that's the worst atmosphere possible. <laughs> yeah. Not,
2: that's, yeah. Not, not, um, I think it's a matter of creating spaces with our friends to say, I mean, even I'm a big believer. I I don't mean opportunity, uh, being opportunistic in a parasitic sense, but like this conversation gives us an opportunity to talk to the people around us about, you know, what's on our mind. And to say to our friends, you know, we were talking about sexuality and the messages we get growing up. How do you think those messages have Have impacted you. Sometimes it's a matter of owning those messages out loud and saying, Can you believe this is what I was told? And this is how it affects me today. When I work with parents and caregivers and guardians, I ask them one question to sort of get us started. I said, I'm going to ask you to get out of your comfort zone, first of all. But I want you to think about this question How might your life have been different? How might the experiences, the relationships you had growing up, how might they have been different if the messages you got growing up were different? And it forces everyone to say, huh, huh, <laughs> there's a lot I probably would have done differently. I probably wouldn't have been with this person. I probably would have spoken up more here. But like that diffuses some of it because it forces us to realize we could have made changes had we given, been given more equitable, pleasure-focused information.
1: And what a wonderful note to, to end on, too, is just, um, just to think about that. I want to thank you guys. Um, and if you have it, do you have social media handles you want to shout out really quick in case people want, would like to continue the conversation digitally? Mine's easy, orgasmic birth. Hard to remember, but I Mine's think we can... Mine's
2: not orgasmic birth, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Logan Labkoff.
1: <laughs> and, um, and of course, uh, Rosebud, woman, is putting on this whole event, follow them too, the Rose Woman, Christine. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you all. Thank
0: you so much, Allie, too. Thank you, as always, for being here. It's a pleasure to speak to you every week about sensuality, sexuality, reproductive health, philosophy, love, freedom, liberation. Let's go do this life thing with as much joy as possible. Joy and pleasure are your birthright this program is brought to you by rosebud woman our stimulating serum arouse is the first of its kind a three-in-one arousal oil that plumps and tingles and lubricates it works for sensation when you're solo pleasuring or enjoying some time with another and it works to deliver high quality adaptogens over time through the skin of the vulva and the vaginal canal You can try it at rosewoman.com. The discount code for podcast listeners is POD10 for 10% off. And if you'd like to get a smaller sample size, you can also order free samples or just pick up one of our travel kits, which has TSA-friendly versions of our top four products. All love, all peace, all blessings. I have ultimate faith in your ability to live a life at the intersection of your enjoyment and your relatedness, a life of deep pleasure, meaning, and lasting happiness.